Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. Hello, Joe. What do you know? This is Cam the Provocateur. <laughs> and uh, Cam, I would like a slice of cheesecake. And there's only one person in town that makes the best cheesecake. <laughs> so we've called in a special, special expert this week, returning for her second time on the show. It is Miss Carrie Specht. Hello, Carrie. How are you doing? Hi, but if you're looking to me about cheesecake, then I'm sorry you've come to the wrong place. Do you dislike cheesecake or? No, it's just, uh, unlike Bogart, you know, I'm not going to stop my day if I don't get the right piece. Though I will say <laughs> the best cheesecake I've ever had was in New York like within the block of NYU to School of the Arts. Scott, I'm the person you should be talking to. I'm the one that sells cheesecake for a living. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're the baker. <laughs> I forgot. Oops. Yep. Oops. <laughs> it's, it's okay. It's okay. We're, we're already making mistakes. We're, we, we've just started. It's good. But Carrie, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Um, I'm so excited to be back. I'm really pleased that you guys contacted me for this. Well, we saw Comrade Vite was on the uh, guest, the cast list, and we're like, well, I guess Carrie's coming back. Mm. I thought the same thing. I thought it was really funny about that. And I thought, and it's, you know, we'll get into this in a bit, but there's so many similarities in his role with that one and this one, but also so very different. But that's the beauty of Comrade Bite. The man has bad luck with boats. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't make that connection. To just now. I? <laughs> Beautiful. But it, it's it's been at least a year, I think, since at least when we recorded really? the episode with you. Okay. Yeah, over at this point. But what's been going on with you? I mean, this is all like... Well, now I'm was... wondering why you guys haven't called sooner. Um, I am now the chair of my department at the university where I teach. Congratulations. Um, I had a short film script, a horror film script that was accepted to 27 festivals, and I won first place in five of them. Wow. Um, let's see. I... I'm developing an online class, and I'm supposed to be shooting a short film for my university regarding a story that has to deal with the wartime World War II president who helped uh, get the release of five of our Japanese-American students who were taken um, away. So he worked diligently for like four or something like that. Surprisingly, a short amount of time, but like five months to get them out and uh, transferred to a sister school inland. Which, if you didn't know, that's one of the ways you could get out of the camps uh, was to get a university to accept you that wasn't on the West Coast. So those are a few things that I'm up to. So you could say you've been busy. A little bit, yeah. A little bit. But you've made time to come and see us, and we appreciate that. And, you know, we checked your spy credentials last time. There's no need to pass the checkpoint Charlie this time. We, we, we know you make muster here. Um so I guess the question goes to Cam. Let's let's get down to the Comrade Vite and, you know, Humphrey Bogart of it all. What are we talking about? Yeah, we are tackling 1942's All Through the Night, starring Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, I mean, this is my first ever Humphrey Bogart film. What? You've never seen Casablanca? No. Dude. Oh, wow. Can well, we have I've... him still on the podcast? Uh, uh, I'll see you next uh, week, folks. I'll leave you to Cam and Carrie, everyone. <laughs> Goodbye. Well, we are going to tackle Casablanca at some point in the future, so that will be remedied at some point. So, that will yeah. also has Peter Lorre. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Comrade Veidt. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll see you next time for that one, I think. Uh, sounds about right. Um, 
I actually, well, when we started the show, it was one of those films that was added to the list, and I, I knew it was on my list to watch, and so I thought, mm. I'll just wait until we get round to it here. I'm not going to go anywhere. And so I get to watch it for the first time for, for everyone's audio enjoyment. But we'll put a pin in Casablanca. So really, you're doing it for the people. I, I do it all for the people. Okay. <laughs> um, I watch all the bad films as well for the people. So yeah, Someone has to do it. Someone has to do it. But um, for people who aren't aware of all through the night, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. All through the night, Killer Bogart takes the Gestapo for a ride. Broadway gamblers stumbled across a plan by Nazi saboteurs to blow up an American battleship. <laughs> That's <Yep>. it? <laughs> That's it. It's something we run into. Whenever it's like older movies, whoever writes the synopses can only muster the energy to get the tagline and one sentence. That's like old TV um, TV Guide listings. You guys are probably too young to know TV Guide, right? Do you no, guys no, read? I know TV Guide. Yeah, it's like that little teeny tiny thumbnail. Of it. They've got like that much time to describe it. And so it's nice and short. The good thing is it's nice and short. The bad thing is it doesn't always capture what the film is really about. And I will say right off the bat, the title of this film is terrible. It has nothing to do with what's going on in the movie. Well, they do technically go through the night. <laughs> it's selling a different tone, though, than what the movie it, it, is. That I, for sure. I, I know, I know. But yeah, I, I will just say, Carrie, you just inferred that I was young. Just after you tried to throw me off the podcast. I'm getting mixed signals. I don't know where I sit right now. Um, I'm really unsure. But um, but yeah, this was my first time watching this film. So I've got no background information. But Carrie, had you ever seen this film before? I had, but it was a long time ago. So I was looking forward to seeing it again. And when I was watching it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's what this is about. Oh, yeah, this is what it is. But I couldn't like f remember any of it until it actually was happening. Um, so it was like watching it for the first time. I will tell you, my first impression was like, holy smokes, can you believe this cast of supporting characters? It's insane. It's like the creme de la creme of Warner Brothers character actors all thrown into one movie. I was surprised by the amount of people I actually recognized. Despite mm -hmm. not seeing Casablanca, I, I knew a lot of faces, which is rare for me. I mean, you had Jane Darrow, who won the Academy Award, what, just two years earlier for Best Supporting Actress in Grapes of Wrath. You know, and then you had, um, God, what's his name? Hugh something or other, who always plays the funny sidekick, uh, the guy who's just got married and is running around. Um, you also have Demhurst. Um, what's his name? Demhurst. The guy who was Uncle Charlie on My oh, Three William. Sons. William, thank you. And was in all those um, Preston Sturgis films. And, and then you have the guy who, no spoiler here because it happens right away. The guy who gets killed right away, he was in a bunch of Thin Man films. So you've got, and then there's, of course, there's more. I mean, the guy who plays the chief of police, I think that was his career, was always playing the main chief guy in all these different films. Um, but you have so many people in there. Peter Lorre, you know, Judith Anderson. <laughs> yeah, know, like, that one blew my mind, like from Rebecca. She's so wasted in this film, but she still has one of the top billings, like fifth billing. And then... You know, she later became a dame for her acting prowess. And she, you know, she's Rebecca and also in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. This guy, this woman's amazing. Well, yeah, I, I, half, to be fair, half those names I didn't even recognize. But you have oh. the pedigree to, to know this. I, I was like, oh, Peter Laurie. Woo. <laughs> Cam, Cam, Cam would know more. Yeah. Did you recognize yeah. him, Cam? 
Uh, yeah, I recognized a fair number of people. I mean, okay. Phil Silvers jumped out as well. Yes, with Jackie Gleason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, had you seen this one, Cam? No, I had never seen this. And maybe like it was during the life of when this podcast started, I bought a four pack of Humphrey Bogart films. Mm. And it had The Petrified Forest, High Sierra, the unfortunately named The Amazing Dr. Clitterhouse, and then um, and then All Through the Night. And I watched the other three, but when we started this podcast, I did our master list of things to cover, and I put All Through the Night on there, and I was like, I'm going to hold off on that one because I know we're going to get to it on the show. Mm. So, no, good, I've never seen good it. Good call. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's nice to talk about these films right after you've seen them for the first time. Because mm-hmm. then you're not carrying the baggage of all the other films that you've seen after with the same actor. For instance, I love the fact, Scott, that you haven't seen Humphrey Bogart before. It blows my mind. But to, to discover him in this way, and then you're going to see the other films, I think you're actually going to develop a, a unique appreciation for him because of that. Because isn't this the same year as Casablanca? That's right. It is. Yeah, like Casablanca, the premiere of the movie was in November of that year, um, but it didn't really open into general theaters until 1943, but it's considered a 42 release. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was began shooting right before Pearl Harbor and uh, Casablanca. And then, so this, I guess, would have been produced after that, but that's when they started all the uh, curfews. And of course, for Casablanca, it was hell for the cast because everybody was not American born. Well, I shouldn't say everybody, but most everybody was not American born. So the entire cast from Rick's Cafe had to leave and be home by five o'clock or sundown or something like that. But um, yeah, it's amazing that this is made in the same year because you've got Bogart kind of playing a similar character at first where he doesn't want to get involved and then he gets pulled in. And then he's the one that has to convince other people we need to get involved with what's going on, which I don't think you guys are ready to tell the plot yet. So I won't spoil well, there's an interesting similarity to a film we covered a couple of weeks ago that I'll, I want to get into as well with this film. But I think let's let's chart the story of how we got all through the night. I'm sure there's more to this film than meets the FBI. Oh, Cam? nice. Yeah, you're welcome. Cam? <laughs> yeah, so the uh, the life of this one started with producer Hal Wallace, hmm. who had made a um, World War II propaganda film called Underground. Fairly low budget and a real box office bomb. And he still was, I guess, quite in, you know enamored with his work on that and was looking to create a companion piece for that movie. And that was kind of the genesis of where All Through the Night started. And he reunited with that film's director, which was Victor Sherman, a guy who'd gotten his start in acting. Uh, most notably, um, in 1933, he was in one of William Wyler's early films, uh, Counselor at Law, which was a John Barrymore film. And um, he would appear in some other things like mostly crime thrillers starring people like Ralph Bellamy and Tim McCoy before moving into directing at the tail end of the 30s with the return of Dr. X which was a film co-starring Humphrey Bogart and um, the, he would be fairly quickly off Dr. X move into underground and then this film and the rest of his career he did some things of note, but was never someone who was like a you know high-ranking director in Hollywood. But he did a number of star vehicles like the um, Errol Flynn film, The Adventures of Don Juan, and the Rita Hayworth movie, Affair in Trinidad. And directed consistently until he got to like the 70s, and he moved mostly, mostly into TV. What was interesting, though, is in the year 1980, he made a TV movie called Bogey, which was a biography of Humphrey Bogart, 
So it was kind of like making a biography about a coworker you spent mm-hmm. a fair amount of time with over the course of your life. I wonder if he mentioned himself in the biography. He'd have to, right? Yeah. He- heavily featured. Just uh, yeah. why, w- why wouldn't you if you're writing it yourself? Yeah. <laughs> it just makes him the star, really. It, it gets you in the door because it's Bogart, but it's all about him. What Interesting, you mentioned the word, the phrase bogey and as a nickname, which I found out doing a bit of research for the film. And this is a question to North Americans in the room, not me. Is bogey slang for something over there? Because it's slang for something here. Yeah, it's an, isn't it a booger for you guys? Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what we, okay. That's, that's no, weird. I think the only, can, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the only time I've heard bogey as a slang is in golf, right? Um, Isn't bogey something you would say, I always hear that, is it in like movies with like air combat and like the, they'll refer to the villain as like a bogey? Well, not I the know villain, that, but the opponent? I know that, Um, I haven't heard that, but I also know that when I worked on film sets and we we're doing background out in a public place and suddenly you see someone who's not part of the, you know, we did not hire that person. Then it's like, Hey guys, we got a bogey Yeah, down, you know, on this corner or whatever. So is that what you mean by the, the enemy? Well, I feel like I've heard lines like bogey at nine o'clock in several movies. Yeah. I've heard that in, in military things like that, naval and, and, and air force stuff. Yeah. Then that's probably yeah. where we got the terminology when working with background. Yeah. So, but I, in golf, I think it's some kind of a, like, I don't know. You got it. It's not a hole in one. It's a bogey like or two over par or, or something like that. Yeah, something, something like that. that. Something like that. Yeah. Obviously, we are not golfers. <laughs> well, Cam is, so he should I be answering this. I've never used the term bogey though in all my time golfing, and I, I've never, and I, I do golf with people as well older than me. It's because he doesn't go two over par. It's much higher, everyone. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But I've also like, I go with a, some you know golfers who are older than me, and they don't use that term either maybe so, it's really old-fashioned maybe i've only heard it in movies golf golf movies <laughs> or maybe it's something like only the pros would say but your casual yeah you know, hobbyists wouldn't really be throwing that one around anyway i brought the uh, tone of the conversation down with bogey talk so sorry cam take <laughs> us back um they were working from a script uh that had a story credit by a guy named leo roston who was a humorist um author and screenwriter um this was his debut credit and he would do a few things. He had actually a very short career, but like he did do a 1944 Hedy Lamarr spy film we'll cover later down the road called The Conspirators. But he only got a story credit because, again, it's a new writer. Um, the movie was fleshed out by two people. Uh, Leonard uh, Spigelgas, who had started with a 1933 film called Hello, Sister, and done a number of kind of studio films. Um, this was his follow-up to a movie called Tight Shoes, and he would go on to do a couple things like 1949's I Was a Male War Bride, oh. um, 1950's Mystery Street with Ricardo Montalban, which he mm. got an Oscar nomination, and also 1962's Gypsy with Rosalind Russell. Mm. The other writer was Edwin Gilbert, who had eight, cre- uh, eight credits over the course of his career. Um, and one of the early credits was uh, he'd made a play. Uh, written a play called Blues in the Night and he adapted that for the screen and it was a 1941 film with Priscilla Lane and this was the follow-up to that. Loves the night, doesn't he? Mm. he yeah, he does night. love the night. <laughs> the only other uh, notable credit he had was uh, the Edward G. Robinson movie Larceny Incorporated. Oh, I like that. That was about it. Have you guys seen um, that? I have not, no. Oh, it's. I would encourage you to watch it at Christmas time because it takes a place during Christmas time a bit. It's cute. It's funny. It's not what you expect it to be. Um, if it's the one I'm thinking of, I hope it's the one I'm thinking of. Uh, and 
Jane Wyman, uh, not Wyman. Yeah, Jane Wyman's in it. It plays the daughter. And also you have, um, what's his name? Carson. Jack Carson is in it. So you know it's a comedy. Um, unless it's Cat on Hot But uh, it's, and uh, Broderick, what's his name? Broderick, who was in. Um, Crawford? Yeah, Broderick Crawford is in it. And I'm trying to think. Oh, and uh, this guy who gets killed, the first guy who gets killed in this movie is in it. Okay. There's a, they're kind of like three, the three main guys, G. Robinson and and those two guys. Right. Okay. But that's an entirely different subject that I'm wandering away from this one with. But it's uh, I don't know. No, you can't no. stop me talking. So. No, we appreciate that. Um, and with casting, Humphrey Bogart was not the first pick. Um, was he ever hits... at this time? <laughs> well, no, because he'd had hits with Maltese Falcon and High Sierra, but he was still considered an unproven leading man. Well, and you know, he um, wasn't the first choice for High Sierra. No. That was George Raft. We'll get to George Raft in a second. Uh, okay. So, producer <laughs> Hal Wallace um, initially wanted gossip columnist Walter Winchell to play the lead of this movie. He thought it would be an amazing publicity stunt and everyone would flock to see... Uh, this gossip columnist starring in All Through the Night. Um, and ultimately, um, he turned it down because he didn't want to commit to an eight-week shoot. Hmm. So then then they went to George Raft. <laughs> and George Raft was like, count me out, not that interested. That's how Humphrey Bogart got the job. We have Humphrey Bogart today because of all the roles that George Raft turned down. Yeah, didn't he turned down Casablanca, right? Yeah. Yeah. That seems like a... I'm sure the guy had a wonderful career. I don't know it, but... Uh, well, no, neither do a lot of people, unless you're a real film fan. You you don't know um, Raph, but people who don't even know movies a lot of times know Bogart. They don't know why. It's kind of like Marilyn Monroe. A sure. lot of my mm. students have no idea why they know her. They just do. Uh, but nobody today is going to know who George Raft is unless they're big film fans. Yeah. The other thing as well, wasn't... Um... Wasn't Humphrey Bogart almost cast in a film that we covered recently, like Confidential Agent from 1945? Didn't they originally want him and ended up with Charles Boyer? That might have been the case. That might have been. Could it have sounds been. right, because he would have taken off, have taken off by then. Yeah. And he would have been in a position to say, no, I don't want to. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, like Bogart was one of these guys who was like a utility actor for a long time you know when i was listing off some of those movies in that four pack i had he's showing up as like a supporting role as mm -hmm. like a criminal or something like that or you know kind of a tough guy role it wasn't till casablanca that suddenly he became this like movie star you would bank on yeah exactly yeah so uh this movie also with its casting um karen verne um, had actually been also featured in the movie Underground by producer Hal Wallace. So he brought her over here. Initially, they were looking at Olivia de Havilland and Marlena Dietrich, but both of them turned it down. Um, Those are two very different choices. Exactly. Yes. Um, and they were, um, interestingly, Karen Verne was also working on another Wallace movie called King's Row, which oh. was shooting at the exact same time as this movie. And so she was actually going back and forth between the sets as was Ju as was Judith Anderson. Judith Anderson was also in King's Row. Yep. I've forgotten. I don't remember either one of them in that film. It's interesting. They actually did that a lot back then. Jane Wyman, when she was doing Larceny Inc., was going back and forth to The Yearling. Mm. So here she was doing some sort of a light comedy uh, in one part of the day, and then she'd have to go and be a dour, serious woman in the other part of the day. Oh, okay. The only way she could remember what film she was in was what her hairstyle was. 
right? There's a comedy skit in there somewhere of her turning up to the right. wrong set in the wrong outfit and reading the wrong lines and like, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm sure that exists already. To be fair. Well, did you guys see Mrs. Delphire? Yeah. 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 Remember when he's at dinner and he's trying to go back and forth between the two dinners in the same restaurant? There you go. Sorry, you had a great idea, Scott, but somebody beat you to it. It, it was Robin Williams, so that's fine. <laughs> that's true. It's true. You don't get that as much nowadays of people hopping between sets. No. Um, you know, there's a few famous examples. I think of uh, Michael J. Fox doing Back to the Future while he's shooting Family Ties, but uh, yeah, that's not the sort of thing that they do too often. Um, Warner Brothers apparently demanded roles for Phil Silvers and um, Jackie Gleason in the movie. They were not initially written into the film. That was something that the producers very much wanted. And so that's how that happened. It makes you wonder what they had on them. You know, it's like, because Jackie Gleason is such a small part and he says lines that easily one of the other characters could have said. Yeah. You know, it's like, I, I can only imagine that somebody somewhere was like, we got to get this guy in there because we want him to, his face to be seen. We want to get him bigger roles. Yeah, exactly. Because like, he just shows up as like a henchman of Bogarts in this movie. Yeah. Whereas at least like Silvers is a little more memorable just playing that waiter who yeah. gets at least a couple scenes mm-hmm. kind of built around him. But yeah. Um, so the movie had a budget of $600,000, which actually Victor Sherman was very excited about because it was his first time making an A picture, as he said. Even though he was only getting $300 a week, it still meant working with movie stars on a major Hollywood production. So it helped his career nonetheless. Well, and he's, I didn't really... I, I didn't recognize his name. Do you know what else he directed? Just honestly, it was when I was just naming off that stuff like A Fair in Trinidad and Adventures of Don Juan. These are movies I've heard of, mm-hmm. but he, when I'm going through the list, not a lot jumps out as like mm-hmm. movies that people talk about anymore. Right, um, right. Yeah. So he had his break and he got paid, but he was really a journeyman director and didn't have a signature of his own. And No, no. That was his work and he just wanted to do his job. No, No legacy of film history there. No, not like a Michael Curtiz or something yeah. who works in the studio and suddenly, next thing you know, has the most amazing filmography, you know, known to man. Yeah. Well, he was also, just a side note, he was also one of those guys that was a journeyman. It was like, okay, the reason his resume is so amazing and diverse is because they said, okay, you're going to work on this film today. And it was like, all right, and you're going to work on this film, you're going to work on this film, you're going to work on And so, you know, he's got a musical and he's got a noir and he's got an adventure film. Um, and who knows how many films with... Um, Errol Flynn, it's just an amazing career because he didn't pick and choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which I admire careers like that back when these films were made because you would have had a more of a variety of the stuff that you worked on because you had to. And then it's like, oh, well, this is a better experience than I thought it would be. Or um, now people will see me in this style of acting. Uh, same thing here in this film. You've got these people, most of them working against type or, or, doing exactly what they did all the time so that their faces were seen. I remember, you know, I'm kind of going off a tangent, off a tangent, off a tangent, but I remember Farley Granger being interviewed and saying that character actors were so strong and so important during the golden age that sometimes that's what guaranteed an audience going to the movie. It's like, oh, Farley Granger's in it. Oh, but they also have these other character actors. And if they're in it, it's going to be good. So it was, it, it was a, a really important, um, I think, stature that Hollywood, of course, at the time didn't appreciate. They just sort of re, re uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Re- relied Recycle? upon them. Oh, Re- well, they're sure. There you go. They relied upon them. Where nowadays, um, 
those more smaller roles, it's like, oh, who's available? And we'll just pull them in and put a suit on. You know, there seems to be a lack of respect for that. You're supporting, yeah, the stuff that gets nominated for Oscars, yeah, but anything less than that, it's like, eh, we'll just put a monkey in a suit. We'll have them go do it. That or they're looking to launch them into a lead very, very quickly mm-hmm. versus like a Peter Laurie. It's like, how do we put this guy in supporting roles in decades worth of movies mm-hmm. and have him inject life into these side characters? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, this movie, as I said, $600,000 budget. I want to thank whoever it was out there that actually put the Variety box office breakdown of 1942 on archive.org because sometimes (laughs) it's very difficult to find the financial information for these old movies. So I bow down to this person. This movie made $1.1 million domestic, $959,000 foreign, for an inter- or for a worldwide total of 2.1 million so pretty good return on investment yeah by those days dollars it's a huge hit huge mm. hit yeah probably just because of bogart i'm guessing uh, i imagine in those days like now say a, a film has a, a hundred thousand budget but there's another hundred thousand a million or i should say or whatever but spent on the marketing so you have to double that number but i imagine in these days it wasn't that case like it was six hundred thousand, and that was it Pretty much. I mean, if you if you go to IMDb page for this, you'll see the trailer for it. And the trailers back then, I don't know how many you've seen, but they're weird. <laughs> they're they're hmm. often, and like in this case, it's the actor talking about having worked on the film and stuff like that. Or they even, they give away the ending, like in these trailers. Yeah. It's very strange. Trailers are not the same as they were back then. And quite frankly, I think they were better back then because nowadays they give everything away. Like literally everything away i can't remember what a trailer i saw the other day it's for a film that's coming out soon with a big star and i was just i couldn't believe it i could not believe that they told all the major points of the film story and then they basically gave it when the the ending it's like well why do i even need to go now i remember watching the the trailer for uh, the man who knew too much the 50s version mm. and james stewart is just sort of walking down the stairs of the, the end set at the end of the film <laughs> Telling you what's happened. And I was like... Exactly. Ah, yeah. This is, this is just different. But I, apparently Hitchcock did that a few times with some of his films. Those trailers. Yeah, the famous one was Psycho, where he took you on a tour of the, the house. Motel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a that was a thing at the time. And I, I kind of wish they'd bring it back. I liked when they used to shoot new material for trailers. A lot of the Bond ones actually did that as well, where they would work new footage of Bond actors into their teasers, for example. Well, and sometimes they'll use outtakes. Like something... I remember watching uh, one of the um, uh, Harrison Ford took over for Alec Baldwin. What am I trying to say? Um, Patriot Games. Yeah, one of the Patriot Patriot Games. It was a it was a uh, trailer for that, and I remember seeing the trailer, waiting to see this line that he says, and it never showed up in the movie. So sometimes they use something that just gives the emphasis or the feeling of the film, but. I don't know. We could talk about trailers, I suppose. Another, hey, why don't we talk about All Through the Night? Well, I was just going to say, because Rogue One famously done that. The Star Wars yeah. film, Rogue One. They had like yeah. tons of scenes in the trailer that never made the final cut because they changed directors. Oh, gotcha. Um, which, which kind of ruined that a little bit, yeah. Yeah, does happen, but uh, sometimes it was by design in those days to yeah. have outside material, whereas nowadays it just means the movie was like heavily reshot. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I want to see a Bond 
actor do a trailer behind the scenes because most recently we would have had Daniel Craig just saying, I effing hate this. Please let me go home. <laughs> I'm so tired. Please. I want to chop my own leg off or whatever it is he said in that interview. Yeah, I don't, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, that wouldn't sell tickets. No, no. Um, so the top three for the year of 1942, number one was Bambi. Number two was Mrs. Miniver. And number three was Yankee Doodle Dandy. And um, Man, that is a variety there. I know, right? Yeah, and Mrs. Miniver would win the Best Picture that year at the Oscars. Um, and uh, a couple of little just final notes. Uh, we mentioned Casablanca would you know premiere at the end of this year, and that would make Humphrey Bogart an A-list star. And also notably, um, Peter Lorre would end up marrying Karen Verne, the uh, female lead of this movie. Wow. Um, I, they met on this film. Um, he was married at the time, so he got divorced a little while later, and they were married in 1945 and together until 1950, which in Hollywood marriage is like 25 years. Yeah, that's not bad. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think, Scott, you had a final note uh, that was also really worth mentioning of the legacy of Alter the Night. Well, it, it's rare I get a chance to talk about this behind the scenes, how the film was made stuff. But I found something doing some research for this film that I was super proud of. And basically, uh, a little bit of this film was uh, repurposed for a Coca-Cola advert in 1991 starring Elton John, of all people. Um, it's on YouTube. There will be a link in the show notes below. But uh, yeah, we, we may come back to it slightly later on. That is bizarre. I have to see that. Yeah, and James Cagney pops up in it as well. In that same commercial? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they basically cut bits out of the film, digitally more or less, even though it was 91. I don't know how they did it. Um, and then spliced it into actors talking to them basically so when when um humphrey bogart walks into the restaurant really or the bar really early on he goes like what what's shaking or whatever is he says to the the guy at the front like they copied that in and they've colorized it as well so it's actually in color oh uh, yeah something interesting there well that's the part that i find offensive <laughs> colorization <laughs> that, it, it might well. be a bit weird with elton john singing away and then there's humphrey bogart in black and white standing near him but yeah Hey. Nowadays, I think you get get away with it. In the 90s, they'd be like, oh, no, we can't do that. We have to have it all in color. Yeah. I mean, this commercial is uh, more tasteful than the Fred Astaire dancing with a vacuum. So it, it's definitely classier. I, though I have to say, I like the, was it the Pepsi commercial that used Spartacus? Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I am Pepsi. I am next generation i can't remember how they did it. it was coke or pepsi but they used spartacus i thought it was kind of brilliant the way they used it you know some people get offended oh how they do that with movies it's like well you know the legacy or the foundations or the estates of all these actors are now getting more money you know you're also exposing people to this film so it's like well yeah you're not getting their permission but you're getting permission from the estate or if you're some one of those small guys who stands up and says i'm spartacus you sold away your rights when you did the part, you know? So I don't know. I, I tend to be like, I think it's cool that they do stuff like that. I take this over the sort of grand Moff Tarkin in Star Wars episode, uh, Star Wars Rogue One. Oh, Rogue One reference again. But like, oh, there's been some other references, some other versions of it recently, but using the actor's digital likeness to mm -hmm. make them act new scenes. Right. Yeah, that feels... I mean, I'm sure their estate signed off on it and it's all above board legally, but it feels a bit gross to me. Yeah, and with, like, the commercial usage, one thing I always kind of appreciate is... I know a lot of, like, classic film fans will get very upset when they see clips of these movies worked into a commercial, but at the same time, 
say like a 15 year old isn't digging up these old movies and so if it kind of keeps these people kind of known yeah exactly the continuing timeline exactly I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because maybe when they get older they do kind of wander into the more classic film realm or even right then i mean nowadays yeah. you know i everybody looks everything up on you know their cell phones really quickly i say something to my stepson who's seven eight nineteen <laughs> and he'll he'll in an instance he's like oh yeah that's right or no it didn't i'm like looking over like wait what and it's like oh he's on his cell phone checking it right there and then so if you've got an inquisitive mind i wouldn't be surprised if these teenagers or whoever are looking up right away and then say oh i should check this out and then you've just pulled somebody into the wonderful world of classic cinema yeah well i, I guess that wraps us up for behind the scenes camera unless you have any more <laughs> Well, unless you have any more, Scott, I, 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 I'm, I'm saving nothing. I'm saving nothing. But, uh, but what I do have is a feeling, and you know, when I've got a feeling, I've got a feeling, and that feeling is that we're going to talk about this film finally. So, Carrie, you're up first. You've revisited it for the show. What do you think of All Through the Night? Well, honestly, it's the it's the actors that make this film. It's not exactly you know an amazing storyline. It's kind of silly. It's been used before. It was, it's very familiar to some other um, films of the age with other big name actors. I wish I could remember the name of one of them. And I think that's why when I came back to watch it, I was a little like, oh wait, this is what's happening in the film. That's not how I remember it because uh, I was crossing over the two. But if somebody's looking for an interesting, intricate plot of mystery, this is not it. You know, it's just everybody's so enjoyable to watch. Karen Vern, I mean, she's a cookie cutter leading gal of the time where it was, I was actually shocked that she had third billing um, because she, her part is not really that big. And she doesn't really have much of a presence. You know, she doesn't stand out. She doesn't have a unique look like you would have like from an Olivia de Havilland. Um, of course, that's a big name, but I'm just talking about any other actress of the era would have a, you could have used somebody else and we wouldn't have known the difference. Um, Conrad Veidt, oh, he's just so good. He's so fun. You know that point where he's like inching across the wall, trying to stay away from everybody. I don't want to ruin the plot. It's like, oh my gosh, who could make looking like he does, which seems to be an overreaction to what's happening, um, and slurking across the wall, who could sell that as well as him? You know, who could make that as interesting? as him. And I wonder what he thought of this role. I'm going to guess that most of the actors involved, the filmmakers, were more attached to the fact of the message of the film. And when I say message, it's not like we're trying to send a deep message um, like people try to today. It was a very easy, simple message, which is we can't have fifth columnists. We need to keep this at bay and we can't pretend it's not happening, which they do some blatant dialogue at some point with that captain, oh, I don't care what they do as long as they leave me alone. And it's like, oh, hit me over the head. This is what America's saying, right? And Bogart and the others are very blatantly saying in their dialogue, but no, we can't let that happen. Um, that wouldn't fly today. Or at least people would be go, oh, come on, you're spoon feeding me. But because you have these actors saying these lines, like, the line that bugged me the most was when the captain goes, okay. Or well, however he said that he agreed that he would go and help them. Okay. It's like, really? <laughs> it took only a couple of seconds to tell you what was going on to get you to, to come on board with this idea. Um, by the way, have either one of you seen The Rocketeer? Uh, it's funny you mentioned that because we reviewed that 
Uh, was it two weeks ago, Scott? Two weeks ago. Yeah. Okay. Do you know what scene I'm thinking of? Yeah, that's really uh, that similar was to the thing. Uh-huh. I said I wanted to make reference to a film we covered recently earlier. It was The Rocketeer. So yeah. I think the exact same reference you're going to make. So go ahead. Well, it, it's it's the that fight at the scene, the shootout, where basically the gangsters and the cops and FBI have to all get together to fight the Nazis. And it happens in The Rocketeer. And there's this one moment where Paul Servino, who passed away not too long ago, best known for... Um, um, uh, Goodfellas, yeah, slicing up the garlic really thin. He stops shooting and looks down at an FBI man. And I can't remember if the FBI man is a known actor or not. But he stops momentarily, looks down at him. They look at each other, and then they just go back to fighting. And you know that what's going through their head is, "Hey, are we usually doing this to each other? Ah, oh, whatever. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna fight on the same time this time because we're fighting a greater evil all together." Uh, we're gonna we're gonna not arrest each other. We're not gonna shoot at each other. We're gonna all come together because we're all Americans fighting this non-un-American thing that's happening. Which is, you know, what um, basically it almost seems like maybe Uncle Sam has something to do with the production of this film because that's what the government people wanted to do for the most part. You know, it was very rare to have somebody in government saying we don't want to be a part of this world war. Though there were many, and it was because of financial reasons. It's like, oh, it's not our war. It's their war. Let's not get involved until Pearl Harbor happened. Um, that changed everybody's minds. But, you know, that's part of the message in Casablanca, too. I mean, you know, Rick um, Bogart is, uh, I don't get involved. I don't choose sides. And this film and that film are like, no, you need to choose sides. You need to decide. Otherwise, somebody else is going to decide for you. So there's the big message. Now, it sounds heavy when I describe it that way, but it's done so seamlessly and in a very... I, I hesitate to say lighthearted and entertaining way um, that we have to put up with that the unsubtle dialogue at that one point to make sure that everybody understands that this is what's happening and why we're doing it. Otherwise, the film is just fun to watch Bogart being Bogart and saying those quick lines to his sidekicks and them doing their little quirks or quips. Um, honestly, I would just tell people, you just got to watch this film. It's fun and it's entertaining. It's, Especially, most predominantly, if you're a film classic film fan. Anybody who's not a classic film fan, I suspect they might find it boring. Yeah, it's actually notable, too, that the movie was shot before Pearl Harbor, but released afterwards. Mm. So you can almost see how, like, this movie would have been written differently with mm-hmm. just a handful of months, you know, in terms of its, you know, production. Right, yeah. Well, it's interesting, because like, you mentioned the um, the fifth columnists, which is... I imagine to people in North America, something that is a known entity, but someone who's living in Europe, although I don't technically live in Europe anymore. Um, Where do you live? Doesn't. Well, I live in England, but we left for some reason. So. <laughs> okay. Baffles I realize, me. I didn't realize that that was an absolute severing that you no longer are in Europe. Okay. Oh, yeah. We, apparently, we, well, no, it's not apparent. It's happened. We're gone. But, okay. Uh, Good to know. Why? Why baffles me, but we'll 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 save the politics for another day. Okay. Um, but like I had to look up the fifth column. I had no idea what that was because it's not really taught to us because we dealt with. Oh, we are told. Own, uh, like I don't. I want to know what the first, second, third, and fourth columns are. I don't understand the term. <laughs> I know what it means, <laughs> but I don't understand it. I should know what the actual name comes from. I just know it was like a a, like a spy network 
of of yeah. German spies, Nazi spies, I should say, not Germans. Um, yeah, that's what I I looked up and found out. But it's, it's it was nice that also you didn't really need to know it. The film really did spell it out to you, like yeah. you said, like it, it did give you the information you needed. Um, but yeah, it's fun that you also pulled that Rocketeer thing together as well. That was it, yeah. It, it's nice that we had these films so close to each other. Um, <laughs> I had a question for you, Scott. Do you recall if they used the term fifth columnists at all in the house on 42nd Street? 92nd Street. 92nd Street, yeah. <laughs> don't, don't get your streets wrong, my man. Don't get your streets wrong. Wait, I think he crossed a, uh, a thriller with a musical there. Yes, I did, yes. <laughs> there was no thrill in 92nd Street, I can tell you that. But um, yeah. no, I don't think they mentioned it, actually. I don't think, they I say don't think so either, no. to the best of my memory. Um. But what about you, Cam? What did you think of All Through the Night? Well, uh, let's, I want to hear from you first, because this was your oh. first Bogart. So I feel like there's more of a hook. I think we need to get it out there. What did you think? Well, Carrie said that you know people that aren't fans of classic films might not like this, might find it boring. And so, logically, I loved this film. I think it was great. <laughs> I, I had a really good time with it. I, I, I struggled like a little bit at first, because everyone's talking very fast. Mm-hmm. Mm. I would just, a, a bit of a New York affectation, or perhaps a bit of a strange cinema version of that, at least anyway. Sure. But I've been to New York and no one really talks that way, at least now anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, well, there is about an 80 year difference, so yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would love it if you tried to memorize that dialect and when you visited New York, you were trying to talk to the locals that way. But only, only the gibberish they were using at the meeting. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I, I thought this was a, a really wonderful time. It, it's not without its problems. It's not like a, a home run film. It's a very empty kind of, it's like sugar. It's candy. It's fun. Mm. It's fluffy stuff. Um, the performances are all a lot of fun. Even like the villains, Comrade Veidt is, is a blast. Laurie is a blast. Um, there's a lot to enjoy. And obviously there is a message baked into this delicious sandwich, um, <laughs> which you can choose to ignore if you want to. But um, I was just, I, it was a two, close to two hour film that I didn't have any trouble watching twice, mm. which is usually because I famously watch things twice every week just to try and get it into my head. And a lot of the times you can tell what I feel about the film by the second viewing, like, oh, oh no, House of 92nd Street, here we go again. Um, but this was like, I, I could keep going all through the day and the night. <laughs> oh, wow. Nice. That is a classic review ending line there. <laughs> Congratulations. Nice. I, 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 fi- I finally achieved status. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, like, I would say initially I was getting frustrated a little bit with the movie. Uh, the title is a real misleading title. Yeah. Because it was in this, as I said, four pack of movies. So when, you know, High Sierra, Petrified Forest, you know, there's a certain tone that's being set up in these movies where I'm like, okay, like, this movie's in that collection. I kind of get what I'm. You know, all through the night sounds like a total film noir, you know, kind of thriller title. Yeah, that or a musical, but definitely with that setup, that uh, that collection that you had, of course you would be thinking noir. Yeah, and um, so I sat down to watch it, and for the first bit, it was comedic without being particularly hilarious. Mm-hmm. And I was mm-hmm. like, okay, where are we going with this? But when it actually kicked in with the, you know, gangsters versus Nazi spies. I was really on board with it. I thought it was a lot of fun. And Scott, one of my favorite things that we've, you know, experienced over the course of this podcast is when we launched this show, we're like, we talk about spy movies. 
and we had a very narrow definition as to what a spy movie was. <laughs> and along the way, I have loved how we've more and more found there's all these other types of genres that are spy movies. You know, we did the, um, what was it? The fastest, what was it called? Fastest guitar. Fastest guitar. And, yeah, <laughs> the fastest guitar alive. Yeah. Um, so we did like a musical Western spy film. And when this turned into mobsters versus, you know, spies, I was like, I love this. I haven't seen anything like this really yet um, on our watch list. And in terms of just like the vibes of it, I found it a lot of fun. And it was a, I mean, you know, Carrie mentioned the cast. The cast is what makes this movie really pop. The plotting is serviceable. It gets, <laughs> you know, you from point A to point B to point C. But there was enough fun with that cast. And for me, I've said it before, I'm a huge villains guy. Mm. If you give me really interesting villains, mm -hmm. then I am on board. And when you have the trio of Peter Laurie, Conrad Veidt, and Judith Anderson, mm -hmm. I, I mean, I am just hooked. Mm -hmm. And they were given interesting things to do. I found them, all three of them, very compelling in every moment they were on screen. They all had fun comeuppances, mm -hmm. uh, except for the case of Judith Anderson, which I liked even more. And we can talk about that character's journey later. But... Um, it was a movie that I walked away going like that was, this was not one of the great films of the forties, mm -hmm. but it was a really fun novelty and one I'm really glad we watched. Yeah. It's kind of film that you see it and you enjoy it, but you're not going to remember it. Yeah. At all. I do have, well, you said, I, before I forget, I want to mention this. There, one of you said there were plot problems or whatever. The thing that bothered me second most, okay, was when Lori meets his demise and ends up going down a staircase that Bogart then comes up later, but it's not like he has to cl climb over Lori's body. It's like, <laughs> wait a second, where did he go? Did he, did Bogart just not notice? <laughs> did, did the body get moved out of the way? What the heck happened there? And the other thing that bothered me the most, the absolute mo most was why did the dachshund have to die? That had the biggest laugh of the movie, though, for me. Yeah. When um, I, I think it so. Was so cute. It was purposely, I think, too cute. Like they they made it that the case because there's a point where they're on that boat and Conrad Veidt is talking about like it's our destiny, and it cuts to a close up of that dog's face, <laughs> and I burst out laughing because I thought that was so funny. I mean, Cam has a history of uh, questionable choices with animals going all the way back to the Harry Palmer films and wishing the dog, oh, the dog got blown up. So, right, right, right. The, uh, also, the dog got blown up at this too. So there's lots of exploding dogs here yeah. on Spy Hards. We don't know that. That dog may have survived. Right. He's a very clever dog. That, that's, that's like the bit right after the credits. You just see him doggy paddling up to the shore. <laughs> exactly. Like, if we got post-credits <laughs> yeah. in 1942 movies... You would have seen that dog paddling to shore at the end. <laughs> so, like, yeah, for me, like, that was what really, really sank its hooks into me. I, I really wasn't sure what to expect when it started going more comedic because it didn't have, like, the really clever patter of, like, some of the other gangster comedies you see of that era. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, in terms of, like, comedy dialogue writing, it's fine, but it's not kind of hitting the really funny beats. And I think... A lot of people who don't watch a lot of classic film would say, well, are you expecting a 1940s movie to be that funny? Yes, I am. Because there's a lot of very, very funny 1940s, 1930s movies that have much sharper, I think, comedy writing. But this one, it was more like good vibes. Like, it was just always fun. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the 
whoever did the writing was smart that they didn't make it too funny because they relied upon the delivery of the lines by the actors. Mm. They knew that they would make it a little more fun filled because it, like we've all said, the plot was really not there uh, or very thin or very boring. But you have these guys in there saying those lines that some actor would say, and it would seem too serious and too a little, mm, oh gosh, I can't quite think of the right word, but it would seem like they're trying. Not enough meat on the bones. Well, it, yeah, I guess that's it. And also, like, it would feel like, okay, they're trying to preach to us. You know, it is, I can't take this seriously. Where the fact that they're being a little lighthearted simply because of the way they deliver their lines, you can take it a bit more seriously. And also, it's Conrad Veet. I mean, Conrad Veet had to say some bad lines here. But the great thing about him being a villain, and Cam, I know you said you love your villains. I like it when a villain isn't just crazy. Why does every villain have to be crazy? This guy's smart and he believes in what he's doing. And that's one of the reasons why he's so villainous is that he thinks this way. It's not like he's gone mad and he's rubbing his hands together and going, ha, 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 ha. He truly believes in what he's doing. And that's how he sells it. That and the fact that V, is it Veet or Veit? I always get confused. I've always said Veit, but then you're the professor. You are the, the you have the classic film fan website. Like, you know. So if you're going to say Veet, I'm going to say Veet too. You know what's funny, though? I usually always say Veit. I don't know why I've been saying Veet this time. You, you actually <laughs> said Veit earlier as well. So I'm like, yeah. I don't know where I am. <laughs> um, Listeners, Veit, Veet, we love him either way. Exactly. That's right. It's a- it's a real Leia Leah thing going well, on. Well, or potato yeah. potato, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's just um, as you guys probably know, since he was in Germany when the whole problem started, and he loved playing Germans, uh, Gestapo and and soldiers because he knew that he could portray them in the best way possible, as as truthful as possible, and he wanted audiences to see that. So even in a film like this, where you've got your lightheartedness everywhere. He's never saying a funny line. You know, he is somebody that is supposed to be scary because he knows that he doesn't want to make it trifling. So he only goes a little overboard at the end. He gets into that crazy villain bit, you know, at the end. Um, But other than that, if he's in it, it's got to be good. I mean, according to Cam, blowing up himself and the dog on the boat isn't crazy, but... Uh, that that's cam's issue with him and his psychiatrist i'll leave them to that let's look at likes things that we liked we all like uh comrade of course but carrie i'll throw it to you a a particular person scene moment thing that you liked about the film oh wow i can't really narrow that down with every one of those um character actors it's so hard to choose i mean what's his face hugh is his last name hugh or his first name's hugh the one who Frank got married. McHugh. Yes, McHugh. It's not Hugh, it's McHugh. Um, he's great in everything. And it's kind of like, yeah, guys, we need a little bit of a funny sidekick. Throw Frank McHugh in there. But the fact that he's, you know, runs into the woman he just married and doesn't recognize her and she doesn't recognize him. Um, <laughs> totally not useful for the plot whatsoever. But he just, you know, if again, if you got Frank McHugh in a film, you know, at least when he's on screen, you're really going to enjoy it. And that for me, you know, the little what was it there there's that line where the guy said yeah something about his experiences with all your experiences yes and then of course McHugh without a a missing a beat says I haven't had any experience (laughs) so um I think yeah gosh I don't know if I can limit it because well, of... that, that's an answer though like the the yeah. cast of characters is, is an answer that that's something you liked it's, it's got a yeah. massive variety of character actors yeah, yeah and no scene is without one 
You know, every mm. scene has somebody, even, you know, if it's not the character actor, then it's the lead actor. But um, uh, the guy who was there with him most of the time, I can't believe I'm blanking on his name, the guy who ended up playing Uncle Charlie, um, Demarest, he's an unusual sidekick to Bogart. And there's the scene where they go into the meeting, and it's just the two of them in bite, beat, bite. Um, it, it, there's no other character actors there, but then you don't need them right? And at that time. And nicely, we talk about the character actors. It was so important earlier in the film. You wouldn't think somebody would have thought of, of this, but to have Jackie Gleason do that grum, uh, nonsense speak, because that set it up for them in the meeting. And now we're not going, wait, where did that come from? Yeah. We heard somebody do it earlier. So, And I think maybe that was only the only reason for Jackie Gleason to be in that movie is to do that shtick. Um, but yeah, it's for me, yeah, I've said it before. I'll say it again and again and again. I'll probably say it again in this podcast. It's the character actors. Well, you could, you could put like any old actor in a scene and they could bring it up or not, but they've put specific actors in these scenes to help bring them all up. And you've got a different variety, different flavor in every scene Mm -hmm. between the leads and all the character actors. And and it, it gives the film the momentum that uh, I, I think helps it be such a hit with the three of us anyway because there's always something different happening in every scene because you have a different energy or character mm. bursting through and i think that yeah you're right that's a really great way to describe it if you swap out like this supporting cast with just a bunch of very generic actors then there's not a story that's going to really hook you to compel you to continue through exactly whereas when you've got this injection of energy coming every couple minutes it really does make it feel much more alive yeah it gives the world some, despite the film not being in color, some colors to it. Like the police chief eating a sandwich while he's having a, a report read to him. It's a strange choice, but you remember the sandwich. <laughs> sure. And he's even like, hey, don't touch my sandwich on the way out. He really likes the sandwich. Yeah, you're right. It's those simple lines. And who knows? Maybe maybe that was off the cuff. Maybe that was actually improv, which would be very rare back then. But to know that he's going to deliver it in a different way than like, say, um, who's a, uh, there's another big Jackie from uh, Meet John Doe, nor another Gleason. What's it? Um, he was also in Bishop's Wife. He was a taxi cab driver. Oh, I'm you blocking. Guys have, you guys have no idea what I'm talking about. But he he he's, would give it a rough delivery, kind of like type thing. Don't eat my sandwich. Um, whereas you've got this guy, he's rough, but there's that element of comedy behind it giving it a different delivery and that's what your guys are talking about regarding the differences of putting these guys in these roles as opposed to just somebody else to fill in the part because these guys i couldn't believe how small some of these guys parts were to have these characters usually these guys aren't the 12th 15th person down they're the fifth or sixth person down but they had to be that far down because there were so many of them um phil silvers his little shtick with saying heil every time was just perfect, you know, to be reassuring, to make sure you had the right person. If they respond mm. back, then I they're the right person and I'm going to bop them on the head. Um, just, and you may, you have to think did the director take the time to work with each one of these guys to bring out their natural differences, to add those little elements because he knows the story in the film is not that interesting really. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, 
equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, you can catch up on reviews of Bram Stoker's Dracula and Flash Gordon, and pretty soon it's going to be commentary time, and it's going to be big, and it's going to be Bond, baby. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, um... I think for me, we haven't really spoken much about... We've actually spoken about more about Conrad, really. But as this is my first Humphrey Bogart film, and he's actually on my like list, I'm going to choose him as my like. Because I think he has this, like... I, I know people are speaking in this weird, very fast, talky, speak, mobster stuff that I don't really get. But I, you, you learn it eventually, <laughs> and you get into the film. But he has this, like, cool, calm, and collected sense about him the entire way through. I want to hang out with Humphrey Bogart yeah. <laughs> by the end of this film. Like, I'm like, he's probably got some fun stories. I'd like to see what Humphrey Bogart has to say. And so I'm looking forward to seeing him in more films going forward. Yeah. I, I was impressed with what he did with this. And I was surprised to find out, just from the little bit of research I did, this isn't one of his more famous films. It's not, like, in his top ten. Yeah. Well, I'm actually excited for you because since you liked him in this film... And you're going to be seeing his other films. It, it's. I'm, I don't mean this in a bad way, but there's no way but up for you. It's just going to get better and better and better. I mean, unless you go back to, to watch Doctor Glitterhouse or what is it, Doctor X or whatever that film was that he was in. Um, then both. Yeah, really. <laughs> then yeah, you're going to be disappointed. But honestly, you know, when you said I want to talk about Bogart, I was like, oh yeah, Bogart's in this film. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you're right. He's that kind of guy that actually, in a way, is almost the same in every movie that he does. But I, at the same time, he is taking a different perspective of himself. So it's not like you're going to see him like being Meryl Streep, where he changes his hair and his accent and everything like that, or Marlon Brando and torture himself. He's not that kind of actor whatsoever. He's really himself. And off screen, he was very similar. But that whole attitude which is very american at that time of eh leave me alone i'll leave you alone let the guy do what he wants to do i don't care just don't get in my way you know don't tell me what to do um and he had that attitude towards the the germans at first or should we should say the um fifth colonists um he's he's got this thing that if we saw it today we'd all be kind of going oh but he's just always Fill in the blank. Like, who's an actor today that just seems to be always playing? Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise, I was going to say, yeah. Tom Cruise is always just Tom Cruise. You can't watch a film without thinking Tom Cruise. You do not get lost in the fact of the name of the character he's playing. It's always Tom Cruise. Whereas Bogart, even though we know it's Bogart, we get lost in that character each and every time. I was going to ask, Carrie, what do you think his most, like, dynamic swing for the fences performance is? Is it Treasure of the Sierra Madre? I, I do like that, and it is unusual. I, I would have to say that that is on one end, and then African Queen yeah. is on the other end in regards to his his uh, breadth of diversity. I mean, you could throw in the Kane Mutiny, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but I almost want to say Hi Sierra because you okay. you've got this guy who is a bad guy who tries to care about other people only to be shut down and then be persecuted. You know, it's right. to me that is a really great film where you get to see him do a little more in depth of a challenge of a role. Yeah, because like around this particular era, it was a lot of these kind of gangster characters. And so I think for me, like the the fun was seeing that type of character plugged into something that was wacky like this. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of them, it's more your standard film noir kind of stuff or detective stories. Uh, Maltese Falcon, he's incredible in as mm -hmm. well. But um, this, it was just the fun of kind of seeing a little bit of more of a comedic twist mm -hmm. on that persona mm -hmm. and he he's a great grounding force for kind of chaos going on around him mm. because there's never a second where i didn't believe he was the leader of this gang yeah and also he was a very viable protagonist romantic lead mm. like you kind of buy all the various aspects of being you know a leading man figure in a movie like this well not only that but it's kind of funny how instantly with the short amount of time that they spend together he's calling her baby yeah or honey or dame and suggesting that there's a potential relationship there. And again, I think it's because it's Bogart that we believe that. In other movies, you go, wait, what? What happened? Was there a scene I missed here? But with Bogart, you buy it because the fact that he's not going overboard with, oh, baby, I love you, or I missed you, or you got under my skin, or something like that. Um, it's the subtlety. And we don't see an allusion to that happy ever after ending at the end, which I like. I like that we don't have that. Like, oh, hey, now let's go get married. Uh, type of thing there there's simply enough to have her say you were my white knight yeah. yeah i was i was gonna ask though are these the most g-rated gangsters we've seen in some time <laughs> yeah <laughs> they're a gang i'd like to meet on a, a sort of dark street <laughs> they probably like give me a, a fiver or something like oh how you doing buddy oh you want to know the time oh it's actually 10 past five yeah good day <laughs> right okay um but cam we, we've missed you out what about you something you liked I'm going to point to Judith Anderson, ah. who I thought was fantastic. Okay, I want to hear what you have to say because she's hardly there. I know, but it's like she kind of looms over the movie for me because I think it's how they portray her as very much butting heads with Conrad Veidt throughout the course of the movie. And I think of like one of my favorite scenes. Her introduction is amazing in like the black dress. She's instantly iconic. Yeah. But like there's a moment where it has Conrad Veidt with um karen Vern, and it's all played in silhouette and it just shows um, um judith anderson in the foreground like just staring at the shadows mm -hmm. and the way they twist that character where you can tell she's the in many ways the brains of this operation and also the ultimate opportunist in the end where they twist it where she's like just sells conrad Veidt out and they're like okay you know you'll be okay but and you know why like, right hmm okay come on guys you didn't see this the whole time She's jealous. Yeah. 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 That I think was a very important underlining is that she is upset that he's paying any attention to this woman or anything to do with this woman. And then she says that the reason she turns on him is basically he broke her heart. So it's now it's now like, well, screw you. You never thought of me at all. So to me, that was the depth of her. Um, I never really thought of her as being the head of the operation, just more like, hey, why are you not... Um, thrilled with me why are you not leaning on me why are you not looking at me the way you look at her i've been around and i've been more faithful and she's not even following our rules it's simply because she's young and a pretty face which i think is a line that she uses see i don't know maybe i'm just carrying over baggage from rebecca or i'm <laughs> like 
<laughs> this woman is like way too in control that I I don't I don't know like to me it seemed like she was someone who knew a lot more than she let on and the fact that she was making the uh smart escape mm-hmm. when all when things came to a head mm-hmm. showed like a savvier character. I don't know like Scott where did you come down on that character? I I don't know whether she jumped out to me as much as she did to you Cam, but I I did appreciate the um like I I knew it all along thing. It, it reminded me of the mother in Notorious. Oh yeah. It was it was warning um What's that chap's name? Reigns. Claude Reigns, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Rain warning the whole time, and then she's like, "Well, I was right," mm-hmm. and then ends up trying to poison her. I like that. Um, that whole like her being jealous thing feels like it was in another film. That I'm forgetting another one of these sort of for 30s or 40s spy films. Well, it is a standard device. You know, you've got this okay. old, the, older, not older than the man, but older than the girl that the man is interested mm. in, and basically taking for granted. You know, well, this woman's here. She's not. She's not gorgeous. She's not drop dead, enticing or alluring. Although that woman feels like, well, wait, I've given all this time and energy to you. Why? Of course, we have some kind of relationship. It's been used in so many, so many movies. So maybe that's where it's like catching in you and going, "This is familiar." I, 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 I did appreciate her sort of handing him in at the end, though, because I would have done exactly the same thing. <laughs> but yeah, he went that way. Well, did I thought it was interesting that the Bogart has this line, which is, I'll put in a word for you. They didn't need to say that. But it's like mm. an extra bit where we know Bogart's a good guy. Do you know what that's a fun connection to? Your past film, Spy in Black, where Comrade Vike goes out of his way to help the, the young people on the boat that he's, he's, he's stealing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good call. Yeah. Didn't have to do it, but he was a nice bloke, even though he was a Nazi spy. Well, I think... It's in that film. It's it's a different film. We don't need to talk. But I felt he was more of a German spy than a Nazi spy because he was a German military man. Yeah, I I think he was a military man. I yeah. will give you. I will give you that. I will give you that. Um, but yeah, yeah, I I see where you're coming from. She was an an interesting uh, wrinkle in the story. Yeah, um, it did seem like it was an extra layer that they could easily have not had. But that's what kept the film interesting enough to keep watching. Or one of the many things I should say. One of. Um, but any any other likes across the board? Any quick ones before we move on? I I just want to shout out the really fun like miniatures in the end boat scene. Oh my gosh! <laughs> like that was so strange. I was like, this is cool. I, I can dovetail off that one. The amount of times they drop dummies. Yes. Off anything. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, movie, for doing that. I also noticed when um, Bogart and uh, Demaris knock the two guys out so they can take their place. Um, Bogart and the, the, the McHugh drag the one guy and Demaris throws the other guy over his shoulder. I was like, what the hell? But we never see his face and there's a slight cut when he puts him down. I was like, oh, okay, they had a double do that because yeah. they wanted to show us how how brawny he was. Well, Humphrey Bogart also carries um, Karen Verne down the like the lattice on the side of the building. It's probably not him carrying or her, to be fair. Also, it's a dummy at one point. That he's when it, when you see his face and he starts to climb down, it's a dummy. Why would you ruin that illusion for me? Oh, Why sorry. Why would you do that? <laughs> I was swept away in the majesty of cinema, and you're hey, like, no, hey, Scott. Cam started it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm so glad you brought up the miniatures because it it was so fun to see those and see how they intercutted with the real stuff. Yeah. I, it made me think of Hitchcock right away because he was such a big fan of using miniatures in his early films. 
I'm I'm a big sort of Jerry Anderson, Thunderbirds, that sort of stuff, the Super Mario Nation. So anything with like that miniatures, I, I I'm taken back to my childhood instantaneously. So that was really fun to see. But uh, we do have to talk about dislikes. I'm sure we have maybe one or two. Uh, Carrie, guests are always first. Is there something that, that, that grated on you with the film? Oh, gosh, I don't think so, honestly. Um, I mean, we've said it's not a great story, but that aside, you know, it's not like I hated it and there wasn't anything particularly no. wrong about the directing or the writing or producing or anything like that. I suppose that my big dislike was how few women are in the film. I'm not a mm-hmm. feminist. I'm not saying, oh, we, you know, me too or anything like that. I'm just saying we only have the good girl and the bad woman in the whole film. Oh, I'm sorry. I take that back. We also have mom. Uh, but you've got the sweetheart, the mother figure, and literally both of them being those things. And then you've got the evil woman. I mean, we don't even see women in the back. Oh, gosh. I'm, I'm forgetting myself that there's the gal that just got married. <laughs> Right. Okay, so we have four women in the film. <laughs> it's escalating. The entire cast was women. <laughs> the dog was probably female too. Um, yeah. I just—it was kind of weird not to see any other women, you know, in the film. I mean, granted, they're fifth comics, but I think we—I don't know about you, Scott, because you don't watch old movies apparently as much as as we do. But um, maybe that's a gauntlet I just threw down. But um, it, the, in other films I've seen of the era, they'll show women in those mm-hmm. meetings, especially uh, blue collar, hardworking women who are along the people who want to un- unionize. And so they fall into these, uh, hey, let's go to a meeting where they're talking about fascism when they don't really make the connection that is fascism. So I was really surprised that there just weren't any other women there except those uh, four key points. And maybe I'll remember a fifth or a sixth in a minute or two. <laughs> It would have been a fun thing to work in, too, where you had female spies and these, you know, gangsters trying to solve, a, you know, basically a caper. I, I think you could have had some more fun comedic scenarios out of that. And so it, it feels like there would have been some opportunities, not just obviously showing, you know, 50-50 representation. Well, and I think that's where the script lacks. Also, the the reasoning behind her doing what she was doing, which I don't know about you guys, I never quite understood what it was she was doing. Other than the fact that she was hanging out with these guys, she was. Uh, are we talking about Karen Vern? Yeah, I didn't quite understand what she was doing. Well, because uh, according to them, they had her father in a, in a concentration camp, I believe. Yes, and yeah, and they were making her like because she was singing at the but the the club. She was rubbing shoulders with the elite of New York to get information. I think that was. The was job. that what it was? Because I it wasn't clear to me at all what it was that she was doing for them. She said to Humphrey Bogart's character a couple of times, like, uh, they make me, like, meet people. Ooh, that's like, horrible. I, I, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I, it's the way they can kind of um, <laughs> make her a part of this plot without actually... Uh, it's flimsy love interest, yeah. There's no blood on her hands when this is all said and done. It's very easily wrote, uh, written out. Yeah. Um, well, that is the main reason why... Well, first we have the fact that he can't have his cheesecake... And then it's the fact that the cheesecake he meets um, somehow gets into trouble. You see what I did there? Cheesecake, cheesecake. That's true. <laughs> you did. It's also weird that like, both of our films have a dairy connection as well. <laughs> oh. Butter and cheesecake now. <laughs> oh, and Scott, how does this movie end? On a... No, it's the mother saying the milkman has gone missing. Oh, yeah. Okay, so we've got milk now. Are we, are we, are we, baking, are we baking something? Uh is it flour next? Eggs? Sugar? 
Ice cream? No, I think we have to stick to dairy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. What's okay? I'll, I'll try and figure out what's next on the dairy line. Uh, I think we've run out already of dairy products. Yeah. Um. Well, I guess I'll jump in with a dislike, and it, it is a problem with the film. I I think it's more to do with it being the 1940s, and it's probably a, a very actual and factual retelling of what's going on at the time. But um, Humphrey Bogart's character has a butler. Um, a deacon is a character named played by uh, Sam McDaniel. It's more the lines that he's given. They're very... I, I don't know what the official term for it is, but it's, it's very antiquated and, and quite racist. It's a characterization. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, 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 again, I think it's more to do with the time, and it is only fleeting. I think he's in all of two scenes. It doesn't diminish the problem, but that problem does exist, and that did jump out to me when I saw it. It, it was very much like the sort of thing that, I mean, definitely wouldn't fly now. Mm-mm. No. No, no. Like, these types of comedy relief characters, um, you saw a lot of black actors playing these in old films, and uh, pretty much without fail, all of that comedy has aged terribly. Mm-hmm. And it's incredibly common in movies of the 30s and 40s, um, specifically. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to mention that. Yeah, I I, I thought that was something to, to bring up because it shouldn't go unmentioned. But in terms of my other dislike that I wanted to bring up, and then I'll throw it to you, Cam. We have this rather large melee at the end of the film between the fifth columnists mm. and all of the gangsters of New York. And I, I think the police are also there. I'm not 100% sure on that. Mm-hmm. But they're, it's it's crazy. And it reminded me a lot of, one, the chair fight in the church of the man who knew too much in the 30s. And also the, uh, the Casino Royale melee from Casino Royale 1967, where it's just going <laughs> crazy. Mm-hmm. Furniture's being thrown around. I mean, there was no, like dog or seals involved in this actually there was a dog involved to be fair there was a dog involved in this too yeah that they that got a bit crazy for me i have to say there was a lot of the same jokes and it was i kind of lost track of what was going on then <laughs> well and the number of people was kind of ridiculous you know it's it, it, it felt like there needs to be like a um uh what's the name of that sort of soundtrack oh like benny hill <laughs> benny yeah, hill yeah. it needed that playing in the background um <laughs> All they needed was pies to make it a pie fight. Yes. Oh, mm. are we going back to dairy again? <laughs> uh... <laughs> Whipped cream. <laughs> ah. I'll have some spy connections in my final notes, uh, just like the one you just made there with the chair fight. Um, okay. As for okay. me with dislikes, as we said, it's kind of a serviceable story, but it's not one where I have a lot of holes to poke at it and be like, oh, I really didn't like that part. It's just that it's more like, it's fine. Um, but... I, the one bit of casting, I just thought like Karen Vern, I really don't have anything against her, but it just felt like she was a little out, you know, outclassed mm-hmm. with a lot of the other actors she's surrounded by. Yeah. And I think there's an important element of this character that's just not done properly, which is like there's a real mystery element to this character early on. We are supposed to be like trying to gauge who this character is. There's a little bit of a film noir set up. Like, is she someone who's trustworthy? Mm-hmm. And none of that really was sold by the performance. You're right. And... Scott, you and I talked recently about um, um, Confidential Agent, where Lauren Bacall was cast in a very poor casting choice, mm-hmm. you know, and was not able to do a very good performance because she shouldn't have had that job in the first place or been forced into it because she didn't want to do it at all. And in this case, it's just like Karen Verne, you know, up-and-coming actress, I don't think quite had the skill set yet, mm-hmm. and she's being put opposite Peter Laurie, Humphrey Bogart, this... Judith Anderson, this like just murderer's row of top level character actors and, you know, future movie stars and just feels like she can't quite tread water with them. Right. 
I was going to mention Lauren Bacall, but I thought like it was recency bias in my head. But like, it was a shame with her character because not only there's that whole mystery of is she working for them, is she not? Because like he, she hits him over the head with the with uh, hits him, hits Humphrey Bogart over the head with the statue. So you think she's on the side of of the fifth columnist? So it's keeping the viewer confused. But there's also meant to be a sadness to her. She thinks for a long amount of the film that her father is a still alive and b in a in a camp in Dachau. But and then she finds out he's dead. But there's never really a change in her tone, yeah, or how she's yeah. acting. Exactly, like, it's the same thing the whole way through. It's like, oh, my dad's dead. So anyway, yeah. yeah. And her character on paper would have the biggest emotional journey of any character in the movie. Should have, and you just don't really get that. Yeah. yeah. I would say that the casting for her in this film probably actually hurt her career because they put her in something she wasn't ready for or end up against that those heavyweights. And how could she possibly shine in that company? Did she have a, a larger career after this or was this sort of the height? Uh, this was, I mean, there's not a lot else that's really of major note. Like if you look up her best known credits on IMDb, this is number one. I suspect that after she married Peter Lorre, that she probably put her career on the back burner because she wasn't right. already established. So probably went to be a nice little housewife as you did in the era. Sure. Mm-hmm. And she also, I should say, passed away at 49 years old. Dang. So she also didn't have, you know, the long life that some other people would. Well, I think before we move over to the knock list, just throwing out any final notes and you want to mention about the film before we wrap up, Carrie, have you got anything else for us? Well, um, I think we've sort of gone over it before, but as we've said, each character actor had their shiny moments. And though we didn't see him often, Peter Lorre was great. Mm. Every time we saw him, I think him and Vite were the people that we needed to have to give us a sense of the urgency of what was happening, the true heavy weight of the importance of what was going on. And Lorre, you got to love him in everything he does. So I think that's the last thing I wanted to mention. Since I already mentioned the dog. <laughs> right. Um, I think Peter Lorre may be... He, he's getting up there as one of our most covered actors on this podcast. I mean, if you're a Bond actor, you're going to be number one because we've obviously tackled a lot of Sean Connery Bond films. But, like, Peter Lorre... Is this, like, our fourth or fifth now? The Man Who Knew Too Much, Confidential Agent, this... Is there something else we're missing? I think there is. I think there's another one we are forgetting. Well, he was in, almost always cast in these types of films because yeah. of he's Peter Lorre. I mean, he's made for these types of films. Well, I, I'm glad we brought him up at the end, though. I, I think he's a really important and, and interesting character in the film. You look at like when he's first introduced in the bakery and he's just standing there eating popcorn, not particularly yeah. menacing. And by the end of the scene, he's shooting a guy and throwing him down the stairs. It's really like a, he reminded me a lot of, and this is a weird connection, but um, but Benito del Toro from License to Kill. Oh, yeah. You know, he, he seems really cool, calm and collected, but he has this like, very serious edge to him. Uh, and I really like that. I hadn't seen that from Peter Lorre before. Yeah, it's like you write him this type of role, which he could do these types of roles in his sleep, mm-hmm. but he brings so much character to it. And on paper, there's really not that much there to the character of Pepe. Mm-hmm. But like, the way he's eating the popcorn, just every scene he's in, he seems like such a strong presence that it just comes alive the way that Del Toro does. Because that character he plays in License to Kill, there's nothing there on the page. Mm. Except for Honeymoon. <laughs> but he even his delivery of that is entirely his own weird slant on it, right? Sure. 
Well, and this is a case of good casting. You, you know, when they talk about directing, the hardest job that you have is casting. Because if you cast the right person, then most of your work is done. Yeah. You're not having to direct against the abilities of the actor. You're working with them. Yeah, I think it was J.J. Abrams said that just for him, directing is casting. Mm-hmm. And it's the hardest job. Mm-hmm. There are many before him who have said that, but sure. Okay. We'll give mm-hmm. JJ. But, but, yeah, let's give it to J.J. Abrams. <laughs> you give it to J.J. <laughs> the great visionary. Good old J.J. <laughs> Gave us such films as Star Trek Into Darkness. Thank you, JJ. I've, I've, worked, I've run into him a couple of times and I've worked for him, but I'll save those stories for another time. Oh, wow. Oh, we'll, we'll hit you up when we've gone off air. Okay. <laughs> then the good stories come out. Or Mission Impossible 3. <laughs> or Mission Impossible 3. That's true. Um, for me, I'll, I'll throw to you last, Cam, so you can save him up. But I, I just had a question for everyone because Humphrey Bogart's character has a nickname gloves mm-hmm. and it's because he wears gloves a lot that's how he got the nickname strange way of getting a nickname but that's fine i'm gonna throw it out to everyone what would be your nickname if someone was giving you a nickname based on something you wear a lot or are found with very often that's easy for me hats okay i think yeah. you stole mine yeah <laughs> yeah i think i think you stole cam i don't actually. know so there are people who don't recognize me when i'm not wearing a hat I'll be walk up to them, say hello, walk by them, and they don't know who I am. To be fair, this is an audio podcast, but in in the space of this recording, Carrie has worn two different hats. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so I, I think it is a hat suspect. <laughs> <laughs> and when you come when you come back for the third time, I'll introduce you as hats. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, uh, you you see me, you know, in real life. What would you say even applies if you don't if you take away hats? Um. You like to wear shorts a lot. Uh, <laughs> We're in Las Vegas. <laughs> that's true. It's true. But that's not a bad nickname. Hey, shorts. No. You know, it's better than hats. Shorts is pretty good. It's actually better than hats. I'm kind of jealous. I'm not tall, though, so I don't know that I want to be called shorts. <laughs> I like it, though. You, you're not tall. I am tall on you, so that, I, I will take that. All right. All right. Short oh, wow. Smith. Short Smith over here. <laughs> no, it's just Short Smith. There we go. Oh, that's good. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Scott, did you say yours? I didn't actually. I was, I was hoping I'd figure it out as I was talking, but I haven't <laughs> figured it out yet. Um, I'm usually found. I I do wear hats a lot, but not uh, all the time. Um, Man, I can't believe you're not ready with an answer for your own question. I know, right? That's the thing. I I never do that. I never. I always just think I'll figure it out live. We'll cut this all out. It's fine. <laughs> but, um, no, you can't. I like this part. Okay. Yeah. Fine, we're leaving it all in, everyone. Congratulations. <laughs> you get the full version of the episode. What do I wear all the time? Hmm. Oh, I mean, you can't call someone like jogging bottoms, can you? <laughs> or, or, like... <laughs> you can now. Oh, wow. I, that's Round... it. That's it. Jogging bottoms. Hey, jogging bottoms. <laughs> Lounge pants hardy over here. <laughs> hey. Well, see, now your nickname would be bottoms. Because they would just drop mm. the other part, and then people would someday go, "How come they call them bottoms?" And then they could tell the story. It wouldn't be the first time I've been called bottoms, but that's a whole other story. Oh wow! <laughs> um, <laughs> save that for the after dark episode. Okay, I'll I'll, I'll take a uh, agent bottom. <laughs> okay, <laughs> agent bottoms, great. Um, but Cam, did you have any final notes for us? Yeah, just a few spy connections. I thought I'd make. Um. The elevator fight in this, I, I made a note, you know, we've had an elevator fight in Diamonds Are Forever. This one was pretty damn good. So I was actually making a note like, you know what? Comparable. They're pretty solid. It was a very good fight. Yeah. 
It was nice seeing that like it was chopping the, the side of that box off. You knew what the stakes were if they got caught in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. Yeah, which you didn't usually see back then, an indication of what was at stakes. So that's a very modern concept. So I thought that was a particularly noticeable touch that they added. And the fact that the guy got hurled off of the elevator as a dummy <laughs> made it perhaps better than Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> um, we also had the auction scene where we're introduced to Vite. We would have an auction, of course, in North by Northwest, mm-hmm. as well as um, Octopussy as well. But one thing I noted was the way that auction scene is staged reminded me a lot, actually, of the church scene in The Man Who Knew Too mm. Much, the original version, where you have everyone kind of gathered for this big thing. Suddenly everyone clears out and you're just left with these, mm. you know, this spy group left behind. I thought there were some real similarities there. Well, you know, homage, right? Yeah. You know, in music mm-hmm. they call it sampling and film it's called homage. If it ain't broke don't don't fix it. Yeah, that's the same. I I figured that one out. <laughs> well, hey, if it's a good if it's a good shtick, if it's a good device, if it's a good, you know, grip or what whatever you want to call that little extra bit of spice that you throw in a the movie, then of course you're going to use it again and again and again and if it's if it's from a film that you really like, too, then you're going to use it or from a filmmaker that you like. Um, because it worked. And like you were saying, Sky, if it ain't broke, why fix it? It's it's dependable and it's shorthand. Audiences already mm. know what this means. So I'm going to use it here. Yeah, I felt like there's a, a lot of connective tissue to this and um, North by Northwest. Not just the the uh, auction scene, but also I just felt like Humphrey Bogart's kind of like, he wasn't, he wasn't a spy. He was sort of caught in the situation, yeah. trying to figure things out. He was a righteous man in a bad situation. Which is kind of a Hitchcock thing anyway. But um, uh, yeah, I, I felt that connective tissue as well. So w- w- well done pointing out. Do you have anything else for us, Cam? Yeah, just the other connection that I thought of too was you have the gibberish speech that they give. That's very funny. <laughs> yeah. it's a Which you, you get every week here on Spy Hearts, of course. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's what we trade in. Um, but that reminded me a lot of the 39 Steps. Where uh-huh. in either, you know, we've done two versions of that now. But where your character is forced to go up and basically give a speech you know off the bat and here they make it more comedic but you're also doing it in front of like a hostile crowd i, I thought there was some definitely similarities there it's better than the uh the school the, the school of girls that we had last week in the 39 steps <laughs> yeah and the re- in the, the first remake yeah yeah that was that was weird that was i didn't weird. even know there were remakes there's like multiple there's several yeah oh i'm glad i don't know the one in the 50s we watched last week you can skip it it's like just a pure comedy take on it pretty mm. much mm. it's definitely a caper <laughs> um well let's uh let's head home home on the range knockless time carrie you've joined us before we spoke about the spy in black that made the knocklist so you have your second time at bat now is all through the night making the knock list? No. Yes or no? <laughs> Sorry, beat you to the question. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, Next. Yeah. No. I was ready for that. I was. It was. There was no question in my mind. So I stepped on your question, and I don't even feel bad about it. Um, no. Definitely not. Thanks for that, hats. <laughs> <laughs> um, no. I told, that's, that's one no, but it's still all to play for. Uh, what have you got for a short? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a no for me as well. It's not a case where sometimes when we have this section, there's a long laundry list of specific reasons why this movie doesn't make the knock list. This one, it's such a straight down the middle, 
fun mainstream movie that like i think it's fun but you cannot hold it up as like an all-time great spy mm -hmm. film it's just one if you enjoy spy films if you enjoy you know film noir stuff or gangster films it'll definitely give you a chuckle you'll get some good performances but yeah there's not a lot to hold on to i mean that's why i didn't even explain my answer yeah because <laughs> it's like yeah no there's there's not, like you said so well, Cam, there's really nothing debatable about that question for this film. Well, two no's. Scott was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess I don't have anything else to say now. No, I'll, come on. I'll, I'll, I'll jog in bottoms here. Uh, <laughs> nothing else to add. No. Well, okay. I, I'll, I'll preface by saying when I looked on IMDb before I watched the film, I, the top review, user reviews, was titled, Guys and Dolls meets the house on 92nd Street. And immediately I was on the back foot. I'm like, no, please don't take me back to 92nd Street. I never want to go there again. Um, I was pleasantly surprised by this film, oh. I have to say. Well, with that set up, I don't see how you couldn't have been. Yeah. 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 Um, I was pleasantly surprised. I enjoyed the film. But, you know, the mission statement is the greatest spy films of all time. This is is, is a spy film. It's sort of... I wouldn't say it's spy adjacent. It's got definite spy connective tissue in there, but it is not one of the best of all time. It's not one I would point out to people and say, hey, you have to watch this after Goldfinger. Right. You know, I have to disagree with you about the connective tissue. For I didn't think this was a spy film at all um, because nobody is spying. They're just being fifth columnists. Somebody towards the end says something about spy and they throw that word in there. But overall, it's like, no, they're just trying to be, you know, like communism is portrayed in so many films in the next decade. They're trying to infiltrate. Mm. They're trying to be the people who lay out the ground of dissatisfaction among the population of the United States so that they'll jump on board to this different kind of way of living that will help them, particularly people who are blue collar or, or the peasants or as, as you might say i did not think there was any spy connection whatsoever for this film it took you 90 minutes to point that out to us <laughs> <laughs> well what else do you expect bottoms <laughs> <laughs> okay 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 well three no's as such all through the night is not making a knock list, but we all had a good time watching it. And if it's if you're if you've completed the knock list and you're maybe looking for some extra reading, maybe that's one to go and check out. As Cam said, if you like your film noir, you like your gangster films, stop on by. I would say. Um, but there you go, folks. The dossier on all through the night is complete and filed as classified. Now, hats. Thank you for coming aboard. Uh, for the second time. I love it. Have me again. I think you've already booked your third. Good, so, good, good. Yeah, I think you've already done that. But um, yeah, I hadn't really taken the chance to plug where people can find you. So you know, where can we find you? Your website, where can we find you on Twitter? Let, let the listeners know. Uh, Twitter, I'm at Classic Films. Uh, Instagram, I'm Classic Film Professor. I can't remember what I am on other social media. Uh, I do have a Facebook page, Classic Film Fan, if anybody still uses Facebook. And my website is classicfilmfan.com. And uh, you, you said you're working on that short film at the moment. Is, is there anything you can talk about with that, or is it still sort of feeling things out? Oh, no, no. The, well, the, the script that I wrote, actually, I'm very proud of the one that I wrote and put it in competitions. It was a short horror script. And yep. that film actually has the classic universal monsters 
in it, but it's Ooh. it's modern day and it's alluding not to those monsters directly, but there's a Wolfman, there's a Frankenstein, there's a so on and so forth. Uh, they all live in a HOA community and the um, great granddaughter of a real, this is a true life um, Chinese magician, inf infiltrates their society, um, but ends up becoming their guardian. Um, and my one of my uh, pitch on the poster is horror is universal. Oh, you like that? That's 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 the line. That's <laughs> that the line great. right there. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, well, there you go. I suggest you follow Carrie. You should all do it now. Find the link in the show notes below. Head on over to the website. And Carrie, once again, thank you for joining us. Thank you, guys. I love this so much. I hope we meet again in under a year. Definitely. We've got our mission. There we go. <laughs> right. Well, there you go, folks. That was all through the night, Cam. The question goes to you. What are we doing next week? Yes, we are kicking off another franchise. We are going to tackle the Matt Helm films. So we're going to start with 1966's The Silencers, starring Dean Martin. Yeah, I've had my first experience with Dean Martin about a year or so ago with Airport. Mm. So I'm interested to see what his spy films look like. And we have a very, uh, very special guest, actually. Uh, quite a acclaimed guest joining us, although not necessarily uh, known for his love of this uh, particular set of films, but uh, his love for other spy films. But I won't spoil that until next week. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week and watch The Silences from 1966. If you like what you hear on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Elton John. There's just a one, and there's no mistake in it. Hello, Joe. What do you know? Let's sample a bottle. I'll make it two. One for you and one for me. Now we just Diet.